take your Bible and open to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14. Starting in verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment. On his opinions, one man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let uh, not him who eats regards with contempt he who does not eat, and let him who does let him not <laughs> let not him who uh, does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servants of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God." For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will shout. Uh, for uh, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow bef- uh, bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, le- let each one of us, or so then, each one of us shall give account to himself to God. We're coming back to Romans 14 tonight. And we're starting to look into the details. We did a big overview of this last week, and we're looking into the details of the section. The section runs from uh, chapter 14, verse 1, all the way through chapter 15, verse 13. It's the longest section of application in the book of Romans, and it has one issue it's dealing with. That's the dangers to unity in the body of Christ. The dangers to unity in the body of Christ. As I said last time, Paul spent so much time on this one issue because it's paramount uh, importance that we as a uh, as the body of Christ understand the necessity of being genuinely devoted uh, to each other in love. Uh, we have come into the body of Christ, each one of us, uh, realizing on an individual level that God has been so merciful to us in Christ. Uh, therefore, we have a corporate responsibility to show mercy and love to each other, each and every other member of the body of Christ. Uh, Christ himself said that the onlooking, the watching world, the unbelieving world would know that we truly belong to him, not by how we dress, not by how we take certain stands on doctrinal issues, but he said the unbelieving world would know us by our love, our love for each other. So love is the distinguishing mark of the Christian in general, and love should be the distinguishing mark of us here in the Fellowship and Cornerstone Bible Church. Now we recognize right up front that we all come from different backgrounds, we all have different uh, Variety of different backgrounds, religious backgrounds, different parts of the country we grew up in. Some of us grew up in different parts of the world. We grew up under different standards of what was acceptable, what was uh, 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 not acceptable. Yet God in his mercy and his grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ has united us all together. All kinds of people like us together in one body. All kinds of people from different various backgrounds 
into a profound unity, into a genuine fellowship that we come together and we worship and serve the Lord in this thing called the church. And the question before us is the same question that Paul is putting here before the the believers in Rome. How do we treat each other? How do we treat each other given the fact that we're so diverse in our backgrounds? How do we deal with each other regarding those things that are not exactly black and white in the Bible? The gray areas that the Bible never or neither speaks favorably to or neither or doesn't speak against in any kind of condemnation. How do we see each other in these areas? Or what kind of attitude are we going to have towards each other in the body of Christ regarding disputable matters? Those things, again, are of one's own opinion or things that are doubtful things, as Paul refers to them. So how do we deal with each other? What kind of attitude are we going to demonstrate towards each other to maintain the unity of the fellowship that God has commanded, that he himself has caused us to come together in this, uh, in, again, in this union, this, this uh, part of his body of Christ here in the church. So these are the kind of questions that are asked in the context, again, realizing that God has been merciful to us through Christ, and again, realizing that the unbelieving, watching, uh, unbelieving world is watching us. So how do we treat each other? In light of the fact that God has been so merciful to us, how do we treat each other knowing the unbelieving world is again watching us? If we act selfishly, if we act unlovingly towards each other, uh, our actions may actually stop our mission to make and make void the message that we are declaring, not only the, the gospel, but the gospel that points to the reconciliation that God has for men through Christ. So if we are, if we're unloving towards each other, that may void the message of reconciliation that we are sent into the world to declare. So we real, we all realize that disunity is and can be a real problem in the church. It's been a problem throughout the history of the church in general. It's proved itself to be that way, sadly, throughout the history of the church. There have been all kinds of conflicts and fighting amongst God's people. Even just a very quick overview in the New Testament, you see that you see these kinds of things arise. You have churches divided. Uh, over things such as human leaders, like in the church at Corinth, you know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And in, in the Galatian church, you have uh, saints who are biting and devouring one another in chapter 5 there. In, in Ephesus and in, in the Colossae, uh, uh, Paul has to remind them of the importance of unity. You see it in the book of Philippi, or the Philippians, you see it there in the church of Philippi. You have two women who are arguing and threatening to divide the church. So co- conflict and disunity is nothing new, sadly, in the body of Christ. So we have to be aware of that. We have to be aware that division is one of the favorite ploys uh, of the devil because he likes to creep in and cause problems. So we ought to be aware of, of these kind of problems arising. And just like in our marriage relationship, we need to keep short accounts with each other, right? If, uh, if you want some marriage advice, keep short account with your wife and keep short account with your husband. Don't let things uh, foster and, and, and boil over. Keep short accounts a guard, protect the, the unity in your marriage. Guard and protect the unity in the body of Christ. And, and in both places, don't give the devil an opportunity uh, to come in and cause division. So we realize that division and discords uh, in, in the body of Christ can become an issue, especially when personal preferences or traditions are elevated to the position uh, of uh, first priority doctrine. And again, you have somewhat of an issue like this going on here with the believers in Rome. Uh, some of them are divided over what they eat or days to be observed. Some think they can eat meat and, uh, 
and some have a problem with doing that because of the, the background that they've come out of. Uh, others believe, uh, again, they can eat meat. Some believe they can eat only vegetables. Uh, verse 17 would suggest that there's some kind of disagreement or having difficulty over drinking or not drinking. So there's always those kind of areas in the, in the Christian life where the, the Christians differ over, and each Christian has a right to keep his or her own convictions regarding a certain issue and, and uh, are not uh, that are not clearly laid out in the Scripture. But when the problems arrive, uh, the, when the problems arise, it's when one group looks at another group and criticizes that group or judges that group. When, when one group uh, of whatever the issue is isn't quite sure that the other group who's on the other side of the issue is all that spiritual as they are. That's when problems start to arise. Uh, when people start to hold a, a wrong belief and practice that is different from one's own and, and we start judging each other. So, again, the question is, how do you get along in the gray areas of, of life? Uh, again, they're not clearly right or wrong in the Bible. Uh, how, do you, how do you deal with those activities where someone thinks it's okay to partake of this or do this thing and others believe it's absolutely wrong to partake or do that other thing? So believers can disagree on certain issues, not essential issues, but then the issue is how do you maintain unity in the fellowship? That's always uh, the priority. So in this major section, again, from 14.1 through 15.13, the apostle is going to give four general answers to that question. I'll give you, the, I'll give you the, uh, the overview, and then we'll go back and work through them. But answer number one is, in order to guard the unity of the body, we must receive or accept one another. Right? I'll just give them to you quick, and we'll go back through them. In order to guard the unity of the body, we have to receive and accept one another. Uh, second answer to the question, how do you maintain the unity? Uh, we are to edify and build each other up. We're to edify and build each other up. Answer number three is we're to look uh, to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who intentionally and then intentionally please one another. So we look at the example of Christ and we intentionally please one another. Then the last answer, number four, is we rejoice with each other over God's plan and providence uh, of redemption. And and we'll we'll work our way through that. So what we're going to do tonight is we're just going to work our way through the first 12 verses and and we're going to come to an understanding of what the text says and then work out some of the implications of what it means Uh, giving a few thoughts uh, along the way to consider uh, before we conclude our evening together. So again, let me read uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Now, except to the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats for God has accepted him. Now, I spoke last time that in the body of Christ, there are those who are weak and those who are strong. Weak in faith and strong in faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, we're not talking about doctrinal issues or moral compromise. That's not what he's talking about when Paul talks about those who are weak and those who are strong. What he's saying is that there's those in the body of Christ who are weak in their understanding of living out the faith that they have in Christ. It means that they're weak in their understanding of working out the implications of their position as Christians. That they're weak in working out the implications of the gospel in in reference to their daily lives. Uh, 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 Another way to say that uh, comes by way of Cranfield, the great commentator out of the book of Romans. He says this, he says, says the weakness in faith to which this chapter refers is not weakness in basic Christian truth, but weakness in assurance that one's faith permits one to do certain things that's good Uh, what paul Paul is saying is is that there are those in the body of christ who are weak in confidence weak in assurance uh, that that they they should have in christ 
uh, someone who's weak in the faith may still be holding on to certain uh, ceremonial aspects from their past life again especially in the context of the writing uh, of the book of romans or, or they may be refusing to do certain things that they have really freedom to do in christ wrongly believing that doing these things or not doing these things provides them better access or better standing before god and of course we know that's not true we know that every man comes to god the same way by faith alone right through faith alone and by grace alone through faith alone the person of jesus christ alone and, and we're justified not by actions but justified by faith and we're, we're justified by our faith in the person of christ not what we do or what we don't do what we do or what we don't do does not change our standing before uh, the person of god so once we're justified we have perfect standing before god therefore we can never lose that perfect standing but the weaker christian doesn't understand that yet they don't understand that yet and they don't understand the practice of, and they don't understand the ability to practice the freedom that they have in christ so again in the immediate context of the section the weaker brother uh, may be a brother who doubts certain things uh, uh, it's verse one he the, therefore he eats only vegetables that's verse two he he esteems one day above another that's verses five and six he he stumbles over the issue of uh, meat and wine that's verse 21 perhaps it's a jewish individual a jewish individual has been converted to christianity whose conscience may be have been trained by the mosaic law so they abstain by certain of certain foods and they observe certain holidays certain holy days etc and so forth on the flip side someone who's strong in the faith uh, believes that they can eat all things they can observe every day uh, alike uh, they don't condemn themselves for what they approve to be proper because he knows the lord has already received him so in the body of Christ, there's these both uh, kinds of individuals, those who are weak and those who are strong in their understanding and the practical application of the truth. The weak tend to be more fearful. Uh, they tend to be more fearful. They're somewhat more legalistic in the practical outworking of their faith in Christ. They want to make sure they don't do something that not, might not be pleasing to the Lord. And in and of itself, that's commendable. Uh, um, we want to please the Lord. Uh, but, but if we're too much on that side, too much on that one direction... Uh, the weaker brother becomes a, a slave to his fears uh, of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable because he's not clear. He's not clear about certain things. He's fearful that he might do the wrong thing and, again, perhaps lose his standing before God, which is not true. Therefore, this weaker individual who's more fearful tends to miss the joy and the freedom that he could have in his life in Christ and exchange that, exchanges that freedom and that joy for anxiousness, changes it for anxiousness and a set of rules and regulations uh, that he thinks he can walk by and sometimes he wants others to walk by on the other hand the opposite side you have those who are strong in faith and they tend to be more liberated uh, they are uh, are often tempted however to push their freedom in christ to the limits and to live on the edge of what is proper and they have a tendency uh, to go as far as they can without actually uh, sinning so there's a tendency by the one who is weak and legalistic to be tempted to thinking he's that his more liberated brother is far too undisciplined and, and not, of absolutely no value to serve Christ because he's uh, too far off on too many things. And there's a tendency by the one who, who is strong to sit in judgment and on the conduct of the of the Christian who is weaker and show contempt towards his brother. So both the groups have the potential makeups in the thinking to cause problems in the area of unity if they do not if they're not fully aware of these differences and not careful in guarding their opinions making sure that they don't raise doubtful things or disputable things to the level of the standard of orthodoxy or to the level of uh, 
gospel truth. So what Paul does here is in, in the beginning of uh, chapter 14 is he's going to direct his attention first and foremost to those who are strong in faith, or at least those who think they are strong in faith. Because if they are, then they assumedly are better equipped to be both understanding and to understand the issues uh, that the brothers who are weaker in the faith uh, would uh, present. At least they should be. Uh, so initially he's going to address the strong in faith, uh, that they need to realize that they have a duty towards their fellow members in the church. Uh, they're not independent from them. They, they can't uh, show any un- unconcern for them. They must be concerned for them. And Paul says, in fact, not only should you be concerned, you should be, you should be acceptable of them or accepting of them. You should accept them. Verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Now, now the word uh, accept, uh, proslambano, a compound, compound words, uh, the prefix intensifies the meaning of the word, and it's also an imperative. So what Paul is saying here to the strong in faith that accepting the weak is not a suggestion, it's a command. The command is to accept the one who is weak in faith. And to accept the one who is weak in faith means that person must show a personal willing acceptance of this other person. It means the strong is to receive the weak into the fellowship and recognize wholeheartedly and unreservedly that this is a brother or this is a sister in Christ. Now accept the one who is weak in faith but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions the esv says as for the one who's weak in faith welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions the niv says accept him who is weak in faith without passing judgment on disputable matters the new king james says receive one another receive one who's weak in faith but uh, not to dispute over doubtful things so we're to accept those who are weak in the faith and again, not for the purpose of getting into discussions or disputes or arguments of, of their opinions, but we're to accept them fully into the fellowship. Uh, again, without a view of critically analyzing their thinking or arguing against their thinking. But rather, we accept them in the body of Christ, into the fellowship, and, and we accept them with uh, love as brothers in Christ, uh, without passing judgment. Regardless of whether, where we may be struggling with where they are. Right? Because if they're Christians, if they're genuine Christians at all, that's not because of anything we've done. That's because of something that God has done in their life. Right? That's something that God has done in their life, something that God is doing in their life. So Paul's going to give immediately four reasons why we welcome the weaker brother into the faith in our, in our fellowship. And again, reason number one is because God has accepted them. God has accepted them. Now, accept the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he made all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. One man has faith that he may eat all things, right? That's the stronger man in faith but he who is weak eats vegetables only now the word weak is a present uh, participle Uh, you go that's tremendous what does that mean well it just suggests perhaps it's a temporary condition that this weakness is a temporary condition because weakness in faith can uh, be a temporary issue because spiritual maturity is something that's always on a continuum of, of growth 
we're always in the process of growing in grace and our knowledge of the truth and our understanding of the truth. And, and the longer that we walk with the Lord, uh, this is something that continues to happen. We continue to grow in our understanding. And it's something that will continue to happen until the Lord takes us to, to be with him. So each of us at various times has different levels of maturity, depending on, again, how much time we spend in the word and how long we've been faithfully uh, walking with the Lord. So here you have a man who is, has faith that he may eat all things, and you have a man who is weak and eats only vegetables. Now, again, that could be for any number of reasons. Uh, most likely it's related in the context of their former religious uh, background, their religious upbringings. And this might be a, a genuine believer that has a past activity, perhaps, of, uh, of idolatry and immorality, and then he just can't bring himself to eat meat or other foods because those kinds of things were often used as offering to pagan deities. <clears throat> now, except one or the, the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions, <clears throat> one man has faith that he can eat, he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Verse 3, let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. Now that phrase regard with contempt means to look down upon that person. And, and, and it's really not just looking down. It's kind of looking down with the idea of being worthless, totally worthless. It's a very strong term, and the term really goes beyond disrespect or dislike. But, but the, this term is so strong, it really finds its way uh, working it into the area of utter disdain, utter uh, abhorrence for that person. Again, this is maybe a, a Jewish convert to Christianity looking down on a Gentile convert because many uh, Jews had real contempt for the Gentiles. Now, does it seem a little unlikely that a believer in the early church would treat somebody like that? Well, the answer is no, because that's the way people treat each other all the time, right? All you have to do is just look at the history of the church uh, in any area, and you would see it's nothing new, that Christians often treat each other <clears throat> very poorly. And Paul says, look, you can't act that way. If you feel <clears throat> in your faith, your understanding of truth, if your faith allows you to eat meat, that's fine. But you can't regard with contempt or disdain or despise the one that refuses to eat meat. And on the other side, if you choose not to eat meat, then you can't judge him, it says right there in the text, you can't judge him who eats. The word judge is crino. It means to separate or isolate. And it really carries the idea of uh, distinguishing being between good and evil, right and wrong. So in the context, the word judge means to judge something to be better, something, something better than something else. And Paul gives, says, again, you can't do that either. Right? Uh, so no one who eats can regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat can't judge the man who eats and saying that what he's doing is evil. He can't do that. Why? Next phrase, for God has accepted him. For God has accepted him. Let no one... Let him who eats, let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Verse 3, right? So, so the reason that we're to accept one another, the strong and the weak, freely and loving in the presence of Christ in the fellowship, is that God himself is the one who has received him, right? God is the one who has received both 
uh, into his family. God is the one who saved both the strong and the weak and received them both into his fellowship, into the family of uh, Christ, into the church. Therefore, we have no right to set up man-made restrictions on the basis of personal preferences and prejudices or even convictions uh, as we go beyond what the Word of God says. Uh, you may have heard the term before, but we have no right to uh, create law where there is no law. Right? We can't go outside the bounds of what the Scripture says. We have no right to make man-made barriers and decide the requirements of Christian fellowship in the church, whom God himself has already established and invited people in and accepted them to be a part of his church. Since both the strong and the weak have been accepted again by him into his family, since they both have fellowship with him. Therefore, it's really nothing more than simple arrogance and sin if we in the fellowship can't accept each other. If God has not made these kind of distinctions, then who are we as mere men to make these kind of distinctions? Uh, the question is, when we start trying to divide everybody and say, well, you can only be accepted if you believe exactly like I do, then, then we are putting ourselves in a position where we're trying to be holier than God because he's the one who's accepted the strong and weak, both into his family, both into his fellowship. So again, if God accepts a man and accepts a man by faith alone, through grace alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone, what right do we have saying that we're not going to accept other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? So we are to fully accept the weaker brother in faith. Again, reason number one is because God has already accepted him. Uh, Reason number two, we accept the weaker brother in faith because God sustains his own. God sustains his own, or the Lord sustains or supports and upholds each believer. Verse four, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stands he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Now, it's both a rhetorical question and it's really a stinging rebuke. As none of us has the right to interfere or play God in somebody else's life. None of us has the right to sit in judgment over another Christian's conduct when it involves areas that are not clearly laid out in the scripture or questionable uh, areas. We're not God. And our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are not accountable to us. But it says, to his own master, he stands or falls. So every Christian, weak or strong, is a servant of God himself. God is his maker. God is the one to whom they and to all of us, uh, whom we will all stand and give an account. The weak don't give an account to the strong, and the strong don't give an account to the weak. It's to our own master that each of us is going to stand and give an account. So it's to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we will give an account, each one of us, and each one of us are responsible for our own lives and our own actions to him and to him only because the assessment by the one who is weak by the one who is strong is really irrelevant and the assessment of the strong on the weak is also irrelevant right because we're all going to stand before the lord doesn't matter or doesn't matter what we think it matters what god thinks now that doesn't mean because we have different opinions <clears throat> on certain decisions doesn't mean we can ever enter into a conversation on these kind of things and, and attempt to genuinely bring help and try to encourage uh, one another in, in our thinking on a biblical level. But at the end of the day, our opinions of our brothers' or sisters' actions in areas that, again, fall into gray areas, gray categories, uh, our opinions are really irrelevant. 
because the believer doesn't stand or fall or have success or failure in the Christian life because of what others think about him. Our success, if I can use that kind of phraseology, our success in the Christian life is found in our Lord who sustains each one of us, whether, again, we be in the category of the weak or the category of the strong. Now, when facing criticism, I'm often reminded of uh, Paul and what he said to the church at Corinth, to those who are his critics. 1 Corinthians 4.1 says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of a steward that he be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, and yet I am not uh, by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who who will uh, uh, both bring the light to the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of a man's heart, and then each man's praise will come from him. Each man's praise will come from God. Right? So in, in the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what each one of us think, <clears throat> what the human verdict uh, against each one of us is in our own life. Uh, that's not important. What's important is what God thinks uh, on every matter in life. And, and really, it's the opinion of the Lord that matters because he's our master. He's our Lord. So again, the Lord is really the only one who's qualified to assess and judge the obedience of a man's heart. Because it's only God himself that knows the inner motives of a man's heart. It's only God himself that knows the inner motives, the thoughts, the attitudes of our hearts. And in the end, our eternal reward is not based on outward service. Our eternal eternal rewards are not based on uh, 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 anything more than our union with the person of Jesus Christ, who again is the one who's brought us into the fellowship. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stands he will. For the Lord is able to make him stand. So the true believer is going to stand before God because his access into the presence of God is not on the basis of anything that he has done, not on the basis of his work or the basis of his righteousness or his own, own personal righteousness. But again, the Christian's sole access into the presence of God is based on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, solely. Completely on the person of Christ, his work, his atoning sacrifice, his intercession. Access to God is granted to us through the person of Jesus Christ, not our own efforts. So it's Christ is the issue, Christ's life, his death, his resurrection. Again, that's the basis of our acceptance before God, and absolutely no one who trusts in Christ shall ever fall. Because nothing can ever separate us from the love of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. So the weak may have a difficulty getting along with the strong, and the strong may have a difficulty getting along with the weak, but God has accepted them both into the fellowship, and God has accepted them both into the body of Christ. And no one's going to be successful ever to bring a charge against God's elect, and nothing again will ever be able to separate the believer from the love of Christ, which is found in the person of Jesus Christ alone. Therefore, the Lord is going to make sure that his own stand. The Lord's going to make sure that his own are able to stand. The Lord himself will make sure that each believer is sustained. The Lord himself is going to give power uh, to do so, to live the Christian life as exactly as uh, he, he desires. So again, the question is, who are we to condemn God's servants? Who are we to bring judgment upon uh, another believer, uh, brother or sister in Christ? They're responsible to the Lord. So we should let the Lord deal with them. 
and whether they're right or wrong. That's not our position to enter into. The third reason that every Christian, weak or strong, should accept every other Christian in the body of Christ is that Christ Jesus himself is the sovereign in each believer's life. Christ Jesus himself is the sovereign in each believer's life, for Jesus is Lord. Verse 5. <clears throat> one man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully uh, convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, uh, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. For if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and of the living. So Paul adds a little bit to the illustration here. Uh, He he now is going to include the issue of days, uh, religious uh, significance or observation uh, of certain days. Uh, Verse 5 again, one man regards one day above another, and another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. So if you're going to hold one day above another day, uh, which is not required, but if that's your conviction, that's fine, but you must be fully convinced in your own mind. Again, now in the context, mind refers to the heart. It's the conscience. Uh, And and our conscience is that God-given innate ability to sense right from wrong. So our conscience entreats us to do what we believe is right, and our conscience restrains us from doing what we believe is the wrong thing to do. It it, it entreats us to do the right thing. It restrains us from doing the wrong thing. And and it's the conscience, again, is the human faculty that judges our actions and our thoughts in light of the highest standard we perceive. So if we violate our conscience, then it condemns us. And again, it brings to us feelings of shame and sorrow and regret and anguish, anxiety, etc., and so forth, fear we follow our conscience on the other hand it it commends us brings us joy and gladness a well-being so we are to follow our conscience as much as it's biblically informed doing or not doing what we believe is right and again i said uh, the conscience is the uh, the human faculty that judges uh, um, uh, our actions and our thoughts in light of the highest standard we perceive so uh, again the conscience is only as good as it's biblically uh, informed of the truth so again, our conscience is the more we biblically are informed, the more that we can make right decisions and stay away from doing those things that are, are uh, incorrect before the Lord. The more accurately uh, we can work and walk and assess certain situations. In general, however, we're to never go against our conscience. Because if we go against our conscience, then we're going against that which we believe is the right thing to do. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. But we must be careful not to uh, impose our convictions upon somebody else uh, in matters that, again, are not specifically commanded or or forbidden in the Scripture. Because in doing so, we're trying to impose our beliefs upon another person. And by doing that, we may become guilty of compromising the conscience of another believer. If we insist they see things our way, in areas that are not clearly laid out in the scripture. So again, Paul says, one man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, 
for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. So again, under the new covenant, there are no dietary uh, restrictions. There are no special days uh, that are set aside that one must follow, that one must observe. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, Therefore let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. These things are a mere shadow of what is to come, and the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul is not saying you can't observe days. He's just reminding his readers that days are really unimportant because Jesus Christ has come. Those things were shadows. The reality has shown up. So again, here in the context of the letter of the book of Romans, Paul is speaking about the strong and weak believers. And so if you are to, to, to come out of a Jewish background and you've just been uh, con- converted to Christianity uh, as a weaker brother, you may be still struggling with uh, days. You may still be uh, desiring to hold on to the significance of days. And, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. If you realize there's nothing separate or special or required about observing days if you don't try to compel someone else to observe uh, these days because in christ they're not binding on you they're not binding on anyone else and as you grow in grace and grow in your understanding and the lord directs your heart uh, more and more to understanding the truth and more and more understanding the person of of jesus christ these days will not become uh, such an issue uh, in, in your life now for the stronger believer we have to be gracious to the weaker brother and not show them contempt or wrongly judge them regarding these matters. So the rule, the standard, the principle, the reason for whatever we do, weak or strong, Paul says it must be, here it is, for the Lord. That's the standard. He observes the day, observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So whatever we do or don't do in the Christian life, it has to be for the Lord. Now, in, in these three, uh, three times in, these, in, in verse 6 alone, Paul uses that phrase, for the Lord. He uses the word Lord, it's eight times in uh, verses 4 through 9. So again, if you eat or don't eat, if you observe a day or don't observe a, a certain day, the reason for either observing or not observing must be for the Lord. You must do whatever your conscience binds you to with the express purpose of you honoring and glorifying the Lord. That's your purpose. That's our purpose here on the earth, right? Everything we do is for the Lord. Everything we do, it must be, uh, we must be able to give thanks uh, to God uh, for this thing that we've done or this thing that we've not done. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord, And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So that would really, I would suggest, dynamically, dramatically, change the interactions amongst people in the fellowship of the body of Christ. If everybody just observed the simple principle that Paul lays down here, that everything we do is the purpose for honoring the Lord. Everything we do or don't do is for the purpose of honoring the Lord with an attitude of thanksgiving. I mean, that would change our interactions with those people that we have a difficult time getting along with in the body of Christ. That would change our interaction with those people uh, who uh, irritate us. Can I say that? Probably nobody in the body of Christ irritates anybody else in the body of Christ. But if that was to happen, 
hypothetically, right? That'd probably change our interaction with those, our attitude, those kinds of people. If we did it for the Lord. Well, why are you having such a difficulty with brother and so-and-so? Oh, it's for the Lord and to give thanks to God. Why are you so argumentative? Oh, it's for the Lord and to give thanks to God. Why are you the guy in the room who's always insisting on having your way in areas that God gives us liberty? Oh, it's for the Lord and to give thanks to God. Why are you so mean? It's for the Lord and to give thanks to God. See, it doesn't work very well, right? If your desire is really for the Lord and with an attitude of thanksgiving then you're going to really have to stop and ask yourself the questions, some very difficult questions about how you do what you do or why you do what you do or why you don't do what you don't do or do what you do or how you interact with people around you if your goal is really for the Lord and you give thanks to God. It affects everything. Again, if your actions are with others in the body of Christ are generally for the Lord with an attitude of thanksgiving, you have to ask yourself the question, is the issue that brought, that bothers me about brother so-and-so, does that issue really bother Christ? Are the issues that, that bother me about brother and so-and-so in the congregation, are any of these issues that have caused God and Christ themselves to separate or remove him from fellowship with themselves or exclude them from the body of Christ? If not then what right do I have? What right do I have to treat one another or somebody else in the body of Christ that Christ has already accepted? What right do I have to sit in that position? If everything that I'm doing is truly for the Lord with an attitude of thanksgiving. So doctrine has practical application as it always does into our life. And what we think and what we believe and how we act really expresses our motivations. So again, whatever we're doing or not doing, if it's done with a proper motivation, we should be able to ask ourselves, is this done for, for truly for the Lord? And will my action be seen uh, that in that fashion that this is really honoring him, honoring to him? Are, are my actions going to lead me to a sense of, uh, of genuine thanksgiving to God uh, for his mercy uh, in, in my life? So if we answer in the affirmative in that uh, direction, then we're probably on track of recognizing that God is sovereign over every area of every person's life even the gray areas and realizing again that we need to be pleasing him in all that we do perhaps some of the issues that we have with people wouldn't be quite so much a a big deal verse 7 for not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself for if we live we live for the lord if we die we die for the lord therefore whether we live or die we are the lord's verse 9 For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both, um, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Again, the weak and the strong are both in the body of Christ. The issue is the same. Not one of us lives for himself. Not one of us dies for himself. We live, we live for the Lord. Or we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So weak or strong, we are all living in the body of Christ. We all belong to him. We're all Christians. Uh, We, uh, in uh, and, and believers, therefore, everything that we do for him and uh, the fellowship is, is for his glory because we're the Lord's. We're not our own. We're the Lord's. We've bought with a price. Servants of the Most High God. And in fact, you, you probably already know this, but a better picture 
in the New Testament, rather than using the word servant or bond, servant or bond slave, it, it really the, the better description of the New Testament believers were doulos. And that just means we're slaves. Slaves of Christ. Slaves of the Most High God. Romans 6, verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient uh, from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's the picture of the New Testament Christian. And, and a slave has no rights. Slaves have no preferences. All slaves can do is to serve their master. Therefore, again, living or dying, we belong to the Lord. And everything we do should be to for him should be for his praise, for his glory, because it's the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that has, is the price of redemption that brought us into fellowship with him, that brought us out of condemnation uh, in, into his family, into his church. So again, we've been bought with a very high price, and there's nothing more, we're nothing more, therefore, than slaves of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Again, to this in Christ died and lived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So we're again commanded by Paul to fully accept everybody and to love both weak and strong in the faith because, again, God has already accepted them if they're part of the body of Christ. Uh, reason number two, uh, God sustains his own. Uh, he, he supports, he upholds each believer in giving them the power to live uh, the life that God has called them to. Uh, reason number three, Jesus Christ himself is sovereign Lord. Right? He, he's the Lord over every believer's life. That's not our position, that's Christ's position. And reason number four why the, we must accept and love each other who are both strong and weak in the body of Christ is that God alone is the one who judges believers. God alone is the one who judges uh, all believers. Verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. You, why do you judge your brother? Or again, you, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, if you've already been accepted as a believer before Christ, if God sustains and supports each believer, if Jesus Christ really is the Lord of both the living and the dead, then what Paul is asking here, again, is a very serious question that points us, again, to the presumption of judging one another or despising one another. And again, look what he says. He says, but you, why do you judge your brother? And again, the emphasis is on the word you. Basically, he's saying, who in the world do you think you are? In light of who God is, in light of who Christ is. Why do you judge your brother? Because when we judge another brother, weak or strong, then we're showing or showing contempt of any kind towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're out of bounds, outside the lanes, as it were. We're assuming that our way, our position, is the only right one. And again, we're really placing ourselves into an area that uh, is reserved only for God and for God himself, for God and for the person of Christ. We have absolutely no right to play God in somebody else's life. It's absolutely inexcusable for us to do so as God's people to judge or despise each other in the body of Christ. Our responsibility, again, is to do everything for the Lord. Our responsibility is to have an attitude of thanksgiving for the Lord or to the Lord. Uh, again, weak or strong, uh, the, the Christian 
We all together serve the Lord. We're, we're servants. We're slaves. We can't usurp his authority. We can't usurp his lordship. So as servants for Christ, we should be busy in the body of Christ working for the Lord, not, not attempting to do his job for him. And if our hearts are right with the purpose of, of pleasing him, <coughs> we'll not have time, <coughs> excuse me, or the inclination to judge or condemn others, especially other believers. Because if we're uh, busily doing everything that the Lord has commanded us to do, then we would be about the business of winning souls to Christ. That would be a much more important thing to do than to uh, always be investigating or picking on each other or brothers and sisters uh, in, in the assembly. Again, we, we're not the standard of right and wrong. God and Christ are. We're not the judge of anyone. They are. Again, we're nothing more than slaves. Slaves of Christ. The slaves, again, have absolutely no right to judge the slaves of another person. <coughs> Everybody who's genuinely <coughs> saved uh, is a slave of the Most High God, and he's the Lord over their life. So, again, our concern really should be in the body of Christ, uh, accepting one another in, and our concern really should be foremost... Uh, for us, ourselves, uh, how we're going to stand before the Lord. Again, there at the end of verse 10, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, it's not judgment here in the sense of salvation because the Lord Jesus Christ has taken care of that for us. If you're a genuine believer, there's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. But what the Bible teaches is that uh, uh, here, in, uh, along with uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, and then in Second Corinthians 5, there is a future judgment for believers where our works are going to be evaluated, where our conduct as a believer is going to be evaluated and corrected. First Corinthians 3, verse 13, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon remains, he shall receive reward if any man's work is burned up he shall suffer loss but he himself shall be saved yet so through fire second uh, corinthians uh, verse uh, chapter 5 verse 10 we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad uh, again it's kind of tough for us to stand again stand uh, in the judgment uh, upon others in the body of christ other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ here in time when we realize we're all going to stand before God and give an account for our life. There's a judgment for all of us in the future. So our prayer should be that we each individually would live our lives in a manner that's pleasing for the Lord and that we'll be able to stand and give a good account in this future day of judgment. And then Paul concludes the section, verse 11, by saying this. He says, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God so then each one of us shall give an account to himself to God so again Paul uh, to support his conclusion derived from uh, supports his conclusion derived from Isaiah chapter 45 verse 23 it comes from that section of scripture where the Lord is declaring that he's God there's no one like him because God is God and there's no one else like him he's going to bring all of history before him in a final day of judgment and everyone and everything is going to be judged rightly before him. Psalm 96, verse 13 says, Before the Lord, uh, for he is coming, uh, for he is coming uh, to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and his peoples with faithfulness. Uh, Psalm uh, 98, verse 9, Before the Lord, he is coming to judge the earth. 
and he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now we're excited and rightfully so about the second coming of Christ. We uh, believe that it's imminent. Christ's return could be at any moment. But also with that excitement about the imminent return of Christ, there should be a little word of warning sent out that we have to realize that uh, the comfort and joy that believers are going to receive from Christ in his coming uh, is not the preeminent issue in the return of Christ. It's God's glory. So while it's true we're saved by grace through faith in the person of Christ alone, we have to make sure that we realize that God is going to be vindicated. His glory is going to be vindicated. The whole world is going to be judged. And his, uh, again, uh, both the righteous and the unrighteous. Everybody's going to stand and give an account. And again, I just the point is we just need to live with the reality of that, that truth that's coming. We're going to be evaluated in, in our life on how we've dealt with each other, how we've dealt with the truth. So our responsibility is not to sit in judgment over each other. Our responsibility is not to sit and criticize each other in the body of Christ. Our responsibility is to live rightly before God, to not violate our conscience. Not to force someone else to violate their conscience. Again, realizing that in the body of Christ, God has accepted each and every person as his children into his family. And he has the ability to direct each believer's life because he's the sovereign Lord. And to him and to him alone, everyone's going to give an account because he's the ultimate judge. So it would probably be in our best interest to stop judging each other in the body of Christ And for each one of us to get ready personally ourselves to give an account of our life before the Lord because each one of us, in fact, is going to do that very thing. We're not going to be giving an account to each other. We're not going to be concerned about the behavior of other men. So it behooves us now to not have our focus on other men, other believers, but again, for us to be living in a manner that everything we do is pleasing for the Lord, honoring for the Lord, with thanksgiving to the Lord. Because every other man, just like us, are accountable before the Lord and going to stand and give an account. So we must judge ourselves and not others. We're to accept each other in the body of Christ, weak or strong, into the family, the fellowship. Because God himself has already accepted each of us into the fellowship, into the body of Christ. And he sustains us. He empowers us. He allows us to live lives we should. And again, uh, the, the, the Christian life is always a life of growth on a continuum. We're always growing in our understanding and applying the truth and understanding uh, things in a greater fashion. So again, we're all giving account to the Lord, not to each other. So again, the command is to accept each other, not to judge each other. Because the Lord is sovereign. All right. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this kind of quick look here at the danger of unity or the the dangers to unity. Again, uh, this one tonight, failing to accept each other as you've accepted us into the body of Christ. Help us to be mindful of these things. Help us to understand that there are weak believers, there are strong believers, there are differences of opinion on a variety of different issues and matters, but for those who are in Christ, those who are genuinely saved we should have an attitude of accepting each other and trying to encourage each other realizing again that we are weak and strong and differing opinions different stages of growth but ultimately our goal for all of us weak and strong should be pleasing to you our god we should be pleasing to you pleasing to the lord so help us to do that 
Help us to do that with an attitude of thanksgiving in all that we do, always looking uh, to honor you, to glorify you, and, and to be found faithful when you do come back, as you've promised. And may we give a good account when we stand before you. Thank you for our day of worship, morning and evening. Thank you for all these dear folks who've uh, been a part of our worship, those who've uh, helped in the fellowship, those who've taught classes and watched kids and changed diapers and uh, just been a help uh, to a successful day of uh, worshiping you. You're the object of uh, our affection. You're the reason why we have assembled here this morning and this evening uh, to uh, focus you and to honor you. Thank you for the fact that though you are an ultimately, infinitely holy God, you give us access through the person of Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. So help us keep our focus on him. Help us to serve you well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.